0: Banks usually don't die because they're actually bankrupt. They die because people lose trust and they pull so much money out of deposits so quickly that the bank is just constrained.
1: On March 10th we had the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank and now Credit Suisse had to be taken over by UBS in an emergency operation. But what does this mean for the European banks? What actions are taken by the European Commission, the Parliament and the European Central Bank? Hello. I am Evi Kiori, and this is your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. Today, we look at the current trouble in the financial markets. To dissect this topic, I'm joined by my colleague Janosch Allenbach Aman, Euractives Economy and Jobs Editor. Janosch. Last week's news about the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank in the US shook the world and brought memories of what seems now to be a distant 2008, when we saw the European Bank's collapse, leading to a financial crisis that most of us remember very, very well, I would say. But could you give us a timeline of what has happened so far?
2: Okay, so let's begin on on Wednesday, 8th of March in the US, a small bank called Silvergate, that was popular with, crypto, with the crypto industry, went bankrupt. And Then next day, Thursday, 9th of March, the Silicon Valley Bank, um, it's a mid-sized US bank, began, uh, began to come into trouble. Um, As its name suggests, its business was mainly focused on California's startup and venture capital ecosystem. And uh, when rumors started to spread about the viability uh, of the bank, these customers, who sometimes had large amounts uh, of cash on their bank accounts, started withdrawing their money all at once, and uh, they withdrew so much money that the US authorities had to step in and shut the bank down um, the following day on Friday, 10th March. Uh, many customers w- were scared, um, especially those who had these large sums uh, of money, uh, of unsecured cash uh, deposits uh, in their in their Silicon Valley bank accounts. Uh, the U.S. deposit insurance system only secures up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars per depositor. But two days later, the on Sunday, the government announced that all deposits were guaranteed, um, which. Is actually a a major change of policy. Um, And by bailing out the depositors, the US wanted to calm the markets. But uh, only three days later, on Wednesday, 15th of March, the Swiss bank Credit Suisse uh, got into trouble as customers started withdrawing their money as well. So the Swiss National Bank offered emergency liquidity to the bank, but soon it looked uh, like this was not enough and customers continued withdrawing their money, and the banks' shares fell fell, uh, to new lows. Um, Then the Swiss government came under pressure from the US and the UK and and other governments, as a failure of the large uh, Credit Suisse would have had a strong ripple effect on, on global financial markets. So, on Sunday 19th of March, the Swiss government organized the takeover of Credit Suisse by its Swiss rival UBS, sweetening the deal with a, with a lot of state guarantees and, and really creating a large uh, banking behemoth uh, in Switzerland. So that's where we are today.
1: And today we're not alone trying to unpick this topic. We're actually joined by Sander Taudois, who is Senior Economist at the Center for European Reform and works on Eurozone Monetary and Fiscal Policy.
2: Yeah, welcome Sander. Nice that you joined.
0: Welcome. Great uh, that you have me. Thanks so much.
1: So financial markets are in turmoil, yet regulators and economy ministers from across the EU are telling us there is not much to worry about. What's your take on what's happening now?
0: I think the first point to make is that these financial institutions that have so far uh, collapsed are to some degree idiosyncratic. Uh, So you have uh, Silicon Valley Bank, which had dramatic exposure to one sector, tech, And it wasn't a very well-run bank, and they didn't know how to invest such a huge influx. And we were talking about, I think, the deposit inflows were or growth was sixty percent in twenty twenty, and then another eighty percent in twenty twenty one. Now, the the prudent thing would have been to just invest it in short-term boring bonds and make a little bit of money, but they went for a big bet without taking any insurance in case the bet would go sour on long-term interest rates, and clearly. They went the other way and so they made massive losses. Uh, Silvergate r- related to basically uh, crypto rackets, so it's a similar story. Credit uh, Suisse is a bit of a different animal but like the other two had been weak for many years. They had sort of gotten massive losses through their entanglements with uh, Archegos Capital with Green Greensill and loads of other sort of scandals over the years. So, this was a big bank that was simply just not able to turn out a profit. But it is a bit different in the sense that in terms of capital and liquidity, the bank was relatively stable. It's a matter of trust and the trust dissipated when the largest investor from the Middle East said he wouldn't put any more sort of equity, core risk capital into the bank.
1: And having in mind the crisis of 2008, which pushed for a number of financial reforms, are banks safer now? Could we see a repetition of the 2008 crisis?
0: So that's the big question. So you have this notion that these are sort of idiosyncratic cases, right? But why are they falling over now? It is because something has changed structurally, and that's basically that interest rates have gone up very fast, fairly high. And that's a challenge for All banks, for some banks, it's also an opportunity, Um, but it creates frictions in the system. And so the question is, has this huge effort these last 10 years, 15 years to shore up the banking system through regulation, stricter supervision, been sufficient or not? And if it proves to be insufficient, that is very politically damning for the authorities in the US and Europe and Switzerland. And so far, the Europeans seem to be ahead, but we don't know how long this will continue, uh, because we haven't had any cases in the Eurozone or in the EU. And the big thing, the sort of big political thing that happened is the way in which the deal between UBS and Credit Suisse was brokered uh, really rubbed the Americans and the Europeans the wrong way, because what the Swiss did, which is against Basel III, against international uh, sort of norms and agreements, is to actually let some of the bondholders in Credit Suisse bleed fully and protect, to some extent, the losses that were uh, led by equity holders.
1: And Sandro, before we get to that, I would like to take a moment uh, to explain that Basel III is an internationally agreed set of measures developed by the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision in response to the financial crisis of 2007-2009. The measures decided in this agreement aim to strengthen the regulation, supervision and risk management of banks.
0: And that was the big sort of concern in the last few days is whether that would lead to contagion for these types of bonds called AT1 bonds or COCOs, uh, which are sort of a core risk bearing bond for a bank, whether that would spill over into sort of trust issues for other European banks. And the ECB put out a very tough statement where the criticism to Switzerland is very clear between the lines saying, we will stick to the agreement. If a bank fails, the the order of, of losses will be equity holders first then 81 and then sort of going down uh, the list so it shows you there are also sort of political tensions between regulators on how to deal with with the fallout from this
2: stepping back a, a little bit um i mean c- could you explain to our listeners why the um, the rising rates are a problem for the banks because we have heard banks complaining for a lot of uh, for a long time that the uh, rates were too low so why are, is this a problem now for them
0: Right. So I think there are two challenges. One is they hold a lot of bonds as assets, government bonds or real estate loans. And those the value of those assets uh, is sort of inversely correlated to interest rates. So it goes down as interest rates go up. And the speed by which interest rates have gone up is particularly challenging because it makes it hard for them to sort of manage those losses. Um, so that's challenge one. The other challenge is it gets a bit technical, but Basically, the yield curve, as they say, is quite flat. So normally banks make money by attracting funding relatively short term, which tends to be cheaper, and handing out long term loans on which they get better rates. And the delta is sort of their earnings model. But given that central banks have pushed up short term rates a lot, and long term rates have not gone up nearly as much, that sort of delta is quite flat for them. To some extent, they've managed to sort of offset that and actually do pretty well recently because the deposit rates that our normal listeners here get have remained quite low. So they're still making money sort of based on higher rates. But these are sort of management challenges and well-run financial institutions and well-supervised institutions, unlike SVB. Uh, They have sort of good ways of dealing with that and sort of running through these risks. And Europe there, I think, has a good story to tell because we've been much more strict on smaller banks. So in the US, SVB was around 200 billion of assets. In Europe, if you're at 30 billion of assets, you already get supervised by the ECB and you sort of have much more stringent regulations on your liquidity and capital. And so that's the sort of story that the European policymakers are telling is that that's giving us a much more high degree of certainty.
2: I'd like to follow up uh, on this. Part of the problem of the, the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank seemed to be the fact that it did not have to uh, apply the, the capital requirements in, um, that the, the international so called Basel III standards required. Could you maybe summarize for our listeners what these capital requirements entail? And you already mentioned it a little bit, but um, how is the situation different in the EU? Or are there also these risks in the EU?
0: So so basically Basel III provides a an international norm it's not a hard binding constraint that then local jurisdictions implement in their banking regulation so the eurozone or the, or the swiss authorities or the us and that opens up space for differences as you pointed out too but essentially the logic of Basel III and its predecessors and as well as sort of more local regulatory actions has been in a a variety of areas. So one has been that banks need to hold much more risk-bearing capital. And one part of that are these uh, cocoa bonds, which were introduced after 2008 precisely so that banks have more sort of core capital on top of uh, sort of shareholder value that they hold in case they have losses. That's one. And another is is sort of stringency of liquidity, because most banks, banks usually don't die because they're actually bankrupt. They die because people lose trust and they pull so much money out of deposits so quickly that the bank is just constrained in terms of how quickly they can sell assets to actually serve their customers and pay out the money. So there are also sort of loads of stress test requirements, regulations on how much liquidity banks should have and and what sort of scenarios they should prepare for. And that's in a way the key difference between the US and Europe is that for Europe, these liquidity requirements and liquidity stress tests, so that's sort of a scenario where they look at what would happen if there would be a fast deposit runoff. Um, they're applied in Europe also to much smaller banks, whereas in the US they sort of build back, uh, especially since the Trump administration built back those requirements on on smaller quote-unquote banks, and SVB was actually a relatively large bank, not a huge one, but a, a large one.
1: You're listening to Euractive's Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on youractive.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge in other fields, you can listen to our tech podcast, Agri-4 podcast, and Health podcast. And if you have any comments or ideas, you can drop a line at podcast at Euractive.com.
2: In the EU, we currently have a banking package that should implement these Basel III requirements on an EU level. We have had the Commission propose it in 2021. The EU Council and the Parliament have now fixed their uh, their positions, um, but they fixed it before before these uh, these recent events. And when when they um, negotiated their, their own positions, that the Council and the Parliament, the ECB actually. Went public and said uh, and and criticised them for introducing new exceptions and for for being materially or even like totally non-compliant with, with Basel III. So, do you think that these? I mean, they have the, the the negotiations are still ongoing. So, do you think that this these events will will have will will make them reconsider the, uh, their positions?
0: I hope so. But as always in Europe, this is a question of different member states, different stakeholders who may have relatively particular banking structures. And so everybody tends to vie for the exemption that serves French banks or that serves German banks or Dutch banks. And the problem is that that creates then, as you say, these sort of pockets of potential vulnerability, which is why on the one hand I'm reassured uh, by the measures that have been taken, and actually if you look at the markets now, all the sort of emergency measures taken by the Swiss, by the Europeans, uh, and the central banks working together even, have sort of stabilized the situation. But there is that old saying from Warren Buffett, when the water goes out, aka when the rates go up, you see who's swimming naked. And we've had these, as you say, these loopholes are there here and there, and so there may be cases probably not big banks in Europe, but there could be a small bank somewhere that's actually vulnerable. Uh, And so I would hope that the banking package gets strengthened, but I fear parochialism may may win the day. Uh, The bigger question is whether Europe gets going on its big project, the banking union, which is a halfway house. Uh, That's the strategic sort of bone that may actually get rekindled now.
2: On this banking union, part of it has, Along, we have talked about, or the EU has talked about, the uh, European depo- Deposit Insurance System, um, which would probably make EU banking uh, a little more stable because uh, there would be more banks uh, insuring each other's deposits. I guess. Um, do you think we will see a renewed push, uh, a renewed push for for such a system now?
0: So, I hope so, and I think it's it's high time because. Emergency measures such as been taken in the U.S., such as taken in Switzerland, they're kind of unavoidable, but they're very costly, especially long term. The U.S. is going all whatever it takes on um, protecting deposit holders for SVB. The Federal Reserve is offering lending basically at par, so they're not punishing um bad banking behavior whatsoever because they're afraid of contagion. But these things have long-term consequences, right? Because it basically signals moral hazard. It signals to banks that private private losses uh, and the public comes and helps you out and so on. So there's And the same with the Swiss case where they reverse the sort of order of loss taking, which has reverberations. And so the big question for Europe, I think is, do we want to leave The banking union as a halfway house, where we have centralized supervision, which for now seems to be working well, so we're getting some of the dividends from that. But we haven't really figured out what we do when a bank does go bust. That's still an incomplete system. It still leaves sort of smaller governments with maybe not very deep pockets, maybe in the firing line, which could be troubling. And as you say, deposit insurance is also still nationally guaranteed. that gives me some concern because the most optimal thing for Europe would be to figure out how to get those two pillars fixed uh, in order that you may avoid having to do these very costly crisis interventions that may come to haunt you five years down the line. But as we know, Europe is built in crisis. And so I wonder if this warning sign was enough or whether we now go back to sort of Kicking back and waiting, and then we may have to actually work on this banking project when when the house is already on fire, which is also usually not optimal. But that's may may be required. Yeah. Um,
2: on, on the theme of the deposit insurance, you mentioned that the U.S. has basically guaranteed unlimited deposit insurance uh, for U.S. depositors in the Silicon Valley Bank, but maybe this might lead to a moral hazard, and everybody thinks now, well, it has to do that for for every U.S. bank. How does this influence banks in Europe? W- will, they, uh, will they also expect to have unlimited deposit insurance now?
0: Or? No, I don't think so. And I, I also think the Europeans will be tougher on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far, the good thing in Europe is you haven't seen any real deposit outflows. Also in the aggregate, uh, the picture looks pretty good. Whereas in the US, in the aggregate, you had around 700 billion of deposit outflows. That's partly a a macroeconomic story because Americans have been dis-saving more quickly than Europeans. Uh, But it seems like there's some stability. Dis-saving
2: is spending?
0: Yeah, like living off your savings. So there were a lot of pandemic savings because people couldn't go out and spend it on the things they like in life. And now they're sort of spending those savings more quickly. But it also shows that there was some instability. So the Europeans are clearly keen, and the ECB and all the authorities, all the communication shows they're really keen on not replicating the American moral hazard bomb that they've put on the table because the Americans will have a hard time walking back from that even five years from now because if another bank goes down five years from today, even in a pretty calm period, that bank will also say, well, why why aren't my depositors also insured all the way? You did it for Silicon Valley. Why not for me? So that will lead also to interesting, I think, politics in the US. But the Europeans clearly want to stay away from that. And that brings me a bit to the point of If you want to make that credible, then you need a resolution framework that works and you need to be able to do it jointly, in my view, and not leave it to the national level, because then we might get a very unsynchronized approach, uh, which has haunted us in the past, especially in the euro crisis.
1: And Sander, you have written about the role of the European Stability Mechanism, the ESM, and how it could be reformed to help in situations of financial turmoil. Could you help us remember what exactly is the ESM and tell us how would you like to see it reformed?
0: The European Stability Mechanism is uh, another zombie from the Euro crisis. And I say zombie because it was the, the European bailout fund that was there to help member states that basically Uh, were in such financial or bond market turmoil, they couldn't finance themselves. Oh, Greece. Yeah, uh, Greece is the most sort of eye-catching example, but there were also other countries. Uh, And the ECB since that era has taken on more of the role of in basically not accepting uh, such market runs on countries Mm -hmm. as any other central bank would do. Uh, I would say, but we have a multi-country currency union. So it took us time to realize you need to prevent these sort of self-reinforcing dynamics from happening. And so it leads to the question, like what do we do with this European stability mechanism? It has 410 billion in funding capacity. It's not being used. The institution isn't doing very much. And the key point is that when we had the pandemic crisis, when we had the Russian invasion of Ukraine, nobody called on the ESM for money, Even when during the pandemic, they made it available at essentially zero conditions. So nothing like we've seen in Greece, it was basically cheap loans for no conditions. And still not not a single country in Europe called on their help. Why? Because the institution in its current form, to me seems clearly politically toxic. And so that leaves the question, what are we gonna do with that place? And on on the other hand, we have this whole question of how do we finish the banking union? And do we need a European fund? not to spend the money, but to provide the sort of shield under which you may uh, prevent contagion and restructure banks. And this is what the Americans are very good at. When the house is on fire, they basically go all out and they have the Federal Reserve and the Treasury to stop uh, the contagion from a place like California to go to other places mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. And I think we should replicate that logic, not replicate the whatever it takes, will bail you out no matter what logic, but we should replicate the sort of stability that that system brings in case we do have banking problems. And to me, it seems logical that the ESM is there, it has an actual financial stability mandate, Uh, it has a Eurozone focus, so it aligns nicely with the banking union, which is still uh, a Eurozone uh, institution or Eurozone project. And so bringing the two together to me would be a sort of quick, very logical way of solving two problems uh, with one with one goal.
2: Let's say a big French bank comes into trouble um, and would have to be saved. How would this system now work? Like this French bank has troubles. How would the new ESM under your reforms react?
0: Right, so in the current system Uh, The resolution would be sort of semi-Europeanized. So you have the single resolution authority, but the French authorities would look at it as well. And then the deposits of that French bank would be insured fully by the French government. There would be no European solidarity there. Nor, and that's another point, so if you're resolving a bank, you need liquidity. Uh, Just to whatever entity comes out, it may not have initially so much trust. And so depositors are a bit iffy on it. So you need to give it liquidity temporarily to give it a sort of a fighting chance to go on as a more healthy entity. And on both those fronts, basically the national level is fully in the firing line. We've not Europeanized that at all. And so if you have the ESM with 410 billion providing that liquidity, and it's important to note, again, it's not a grant. You don't give it away and it will be taxed on the banks later, right? So the pot replenishes itself. Mm -hmm. Then you have that sort of credibility mechanism behind it and you have the, the sort of full weight of the European economy and institutions behind it. And so then in that case, if the bank gets into trouble, you have a much better chance at sort of looking at that bank, maybe merging it with another bank, maybe carving out the good parts, selling off the bad parts, putting it in a bad bank. There are lo- loads of sort of resolution tools. But having the credibility of that system enhanced gives you the chance to do that without...
1: And while this mechanism could be used to avoid panic, reform remains necessary. However, the reform of the European stability mechanism will have to overcome obstacles in order to become a viable solution to instability.
0: There are basically two big obstacles. So, one is political. Because in a number of the frugal, more fiscally hawkish countries, there's still a belief that we need that institution to come in when countries misbehave and, and sort of fall out of the European uh, family in terms of bad economic policies or reckless fiscal policy. So that's it's going to take some convincing and it may not work. Uh, I think that's, that's the first big challenge. The second big challenge is, is institutional because the ESM is an intergovernmental agreement. And so to change it requires unanimity amongst eurozone countries and then it requires ratification by the parliaments now i'm not a lawyer but given that the mandate has financial stability in it maybe there's a way to do it more sort of less heavy burdened in in, in a legal sense but again the big challenge is political and then one other big question which would be the key counter argument to mine is to say the fact that the esm is there is maybe a firewall that you don't need, you don't actually use it, but it gives this sort of extra security to countries and to financial markets, their faith in government bond markets in Italy and Spain and other countries that have a lot of debt. I don't really buy that argument because if you look at how sovereign bond yields, for example, developed during the pandemic crisis, when there was a bit of a panic, the ESM offering this loan did nothing to bring down bond bond yields, almost nothing. What did stabilize the situation was the ECB starting a big bond buying program and the fact that uh, Merkel and Macron agreed on the Pandemic Recovery Fund, so a genuine sort of uh, system of fiscal solidarity. And so it shows to me that this firewall may be much less powerful than it is. But it is, of course, a bit hard to know because you have to think of alternative universes that you don't actually want to try out. but I think there might be good ways, to, you know, just floating the idea, discussing it will already give us an indication of how the markets will react and whether this idea of bringing it to the banking side is helpful. And the last point I would say is other than Greece and Portugal, the euro crisis, a large part of the story was that Ireland, Spain, they had banking crises, right? And those banking crises were hugely expensive for, for the governments, And they basically took on so much debt that they, they then actually had a fiscal crisis. So if you stop part one of that story, if you stop banking instability from becoming a fiscal problem for a European country, then you actually will may maybe, I would say arguably, have a much more powerful ESM than it is now in doing what it's supposed to do, which is to be this important fire brigade and firewall for the Eurozone.
1: Thank you all very much. I am Evi Kiori and this was Ereactive Spin the Byline podcast. Visit Ereactive for the latest news and if you haven't subscribed to the podcast you can do so on your favorite podcasting app. This episode was produced by Janos Allenbach aman and myself and I would like to thank our economy reporter Theo Bourgerie-Gons for his contribution to this story and our executive producer Malte Kettleson. Thank you for listening and until next
2: week.